and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And tonight's movie is a perfect one for the show. This is a personal favorite of mine. In fact, it's one I've been wanting to do an episode on since almost the first day of Staff Picks. But the problem was I could not find a co-host who really likes this movie as much as I do or even really knows it. It's not a huge movie. It was not a massive hit. It's a mid-80s sci-fi action movie called Dreamscape, which I have always been a fan of. And it's actually kind of famous historically because it's the second, I believe, PG-13 movie. So, like, historically, it's kind of a big deal because it was marked the difference between PG and PG-13. But it's one of those movies that, like, a lot of kids liked at the time in the 80s, but it's not one you tend to hear about a lot anymore. So I just wanted to bring it back into the public consciousness and uh, tell people about a neat little sci-fi movie you probably haven't seen. And if you have seen it, you probably haven't seen it in 30 years. So you probably forgot about it. So, uh, let's see, my co-host for this episode, uh, let's see, he's been on the show before a couple times. I had him on for Clash of the Titans, so that was one of my favorite episodes of the early ones I did, and then he did Frailty last year for uh, Horror Month, and I brought him back again for his third time. Uh, let's see, he's a uh, big movie buff, he's a teacher, uh, just knows a lot about movies. I've been friends with this guy for years, so we already have a good chemistry. It's always fun to bring him back. Welcome back to the show, Jason Rasmussen. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back. You know, third time's a charm, right? <laughs> yes. And thank you so much. As I said earlier, thank you for being the one co-host I could get who knows Dreamscape. I'm surprised by that because, I mean, it really is a good movie. And after watching it again, it stands up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's The effects aren't that bad for that era. It's got a cool little plot. I think it's very pretty well uh, paced. Like there, I, I couldn't really pick out many flaws. I was kind of looking for him today, thinking something's not going to hold up in this movie. And like, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but I don't really see anything wrong with it either. It's fun. Yeah, it is. And and this is one of those ones that's also nightmare inducing when you're a 12 year old kid, you know? <laughs> yeah, we will be talking about that for sure. This is one of the scariest movies I saw around that era, 1984, because I've said this before. I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies, so most of the hardcore horror movies I didn't catch until later. I was 10 years old. This movie, though, was perfectly fine in our house, even though I wasn't 13. And this one scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, saying there's not very many uh, TV or movie creatures that scared me. You know, I had this island Earth with that brain creature. I had Poltergeist with that damn clown. Mm-hmm. But this, uh, well, we'll get to the Snake Man later, but the Snake Man's one that it was forever ingrained in my brain for being freaky as heck. Yeah, and it's funny that I have you as a co-host for this episode because it's funny what the Snake Man reminds me of. He's kind of stop motion and creepy and eerie. He reminds me so much of Medusa in Clash of the Titans, who you were my co-host for that episode too. So that is apparently your niche. You do these stop motion creatures of the early 80s. You don't remember the director's cut of Frailty with the uh, stop-motion snakes, the demon snakes? (laughs) The uh, stop-motion Matthew McConaughey, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right. (laughs) So give us a little of your history with this movie, kind of how you knew about it. Again, because I'm reminding people, I asked about this movie for like two years. It was always on my list of movies I wanted to cover. And I could never find somebody who really loved it. And then eventually Jason said, oh, yeah, that would be fun to talk about. So give me your history with this movie. 
Well, I'm, I'm really surprised that it wasn't as popular among the people because it really is a, a stand-up movie. Now, the thing is, of course, this came out in 1984. And 1980, between 1984 and 1985, I think some of the best movies ever came out in those two years. So it kind of slid under the radar, I think, a lot, lot. Plus the quality of some of those. I mean, we started to get into blockbusters and the big, big movies that were making big, big money. So this one, with a very young Dennis Quaid and all that, was just kind of – you know, it it just it just didn't hit the right marks for the mass market. I don't think. Yeah, but it, but at the same time, it wasn't a flop. No, no, not at all, not at all. It, it did well, but it, it was up against some pretty tough stuff. And for me, this movie, I remember riding my bike down to the movie theater back in the days when you were a kid and you could actually ride, you know, around town and not, you know, have too much fear. But I would ride down to the movie theater and I saw this one. I was 12 and it's PG-13. So I don't know how I got in, but I remember seeing it in the theater. So were they actively turning away 12 year olds back then? I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. And this was, like you said, the only, only the second PG-13 movie after Red Dawn. Yeah. You know, and, and after watching this again, I honestly don't know why it even got PG-13, especially compared to today's stuff. Yeah, I could actually tell you that I read some trivia on this movie. Uh, do you want to know why? Yeah. Okay. Well, for people who may not see this movie, have seen this movie recently, I'll explain it. There's a couple hardcore, not hardcore by porn standards, but hardcore sex scenes in this movie that you wouldn't necessarily see in a PG movie. The one in particular with Dennis Quaid and Kate Capshaw. And when the movie came out, she was nude. She was topless in it. There was some nudity in there. It was oh. pretty racy for a PG movie. So they upped it up to a little bit to PG-13. Then when it was released on VHS and Laserdisc and DVD, they cut out the nudity part. So the PG-13 isn't really there anymore, but it was at one time. So it's been spielberg It's been Spielberg. And that's very fitting because Kate Capshaw is Spielberg's wife, or was. Exactly. Exactly. I always wonder if Kate Capshaw in acting, the only reason she ever got into acting was because Spielberg kind of said, hey, um, my wife wants to be in a movie. <laughs> well, I, it's a good joke, and I appreciate that, but it's funny because it con goes totally against my notes here, which is where I, where I wrote, wow, Kate Capshaw was smoking hot on this, and I don't remember that from that era. I, just, I, I remember her doing lots of comedies and stuff like that, but she's like sultry in this one. Okay, yeah, yeah. I guess you go have a thing for curly hair. <laughs> I didn't realize I did, but I guess I do. <laughs> now, the other thing about this movie that stood out to me in particular is we're in the early stages of Dennis Quaid, mm -hmm. and he had a series of hits, bam, 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 right in a row. Some of my favorite of his films. And he was in The Right Stuff in 1983, and of course, Dreamscape in 1984, you know, Enemy Mine, which is my favorite of his, 1985, mm -hmm. and then Space in 1987. So he had one heck of a hot streak for films. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, uh, I will admit that he was one of my favorite actors of the '80s. At the time, I remember loving this movie, loving him. He had so much charisma, so likable. And then I remember being shocked, kind of in the '90s, when he just kind of dropped off the face of the earth for a while. Yeah. I'm like, how did Dennis Quaid disappear? This guy was as charismatic as anybody, like up there with Tom Hanks in that, that era and stuff. And then he disappeared. And I remember he had a big comeback in the 2000s. And I remember just thinking, why did he need to have a comeback? He shouldn't have left out of anybody. I'm like, out of all the actors I could think of, this guy should have always been a big star. He was Spielberg out of the, the films. <laughs> God, Spielberg <laughs> is wreaking havoc in Hollywood at this time. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or, or Randy was causing too many problems and he had to go babysit him. <laughs> yes. What did I read somewhere? They're, they're brothers, right? Randy is the older brother, Randy Quaid? Yes. Uh -huh. I think I read somewhere that Randy was the big athlete when they were kids and not Dennis, which I find hilarious. <laughs> Especially how he looks now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, yeah, so this was a starring vehicle for Dennis Quaid. This was one of the very first PG-13 movies. It was, it's, it's, it's a hard movie to really compare to anything else. Is there anything you could kind of say is like this movie other than there's the obvious one is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the Dream Warriors, where they go in and fight in people's dreams? Right. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that as well. And this kind of set the tone for a lot of the films of the time period because Stephen King was incredibly popular back then, of course, mm -hmm. still is. But uh, telepathy, telekinesis, anything to do with the mind and the psycho, you know, whatever babble, you know, that was very popular at the time. Um, so, yeah, Dream Warriors. And I found out in my trivia that the one of the writers of Dreamscape wrote the script for Dream Warriors. So <laughs> a little plagiarism going on there. You know, he's got to get typecast. You're the guy that writes movies about people who fight in dreams. <laughs> and then I thought, well, if we're going to compare it to modern day, kind of sort of an inception sort of mindset. Mm, OK, yeah, that's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah. OK, I'll just give a quick yada yada summary of this plot. It's basically uh people scientists have figured out that you can go into people's dreams and cure them of their uh mental disorders of their anxieties it's like a psychotherapy type thing you go into someone's dreams you can help them you know fight their demons but this gift is being used for evil because there's also dream assassins who are being trained to go into people's dreams and murder them and the adage here is that uh, if you dream that you die, you die in real life. So this gift of people that can jump into people's dreams is being used for evil. And it all culminates in a big showdown with the good and the evil dream warriors inside the president's dream. That's the short version. Yep. Inside uh, Eddie Alpert's brain, you know, the president. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a pretty simple movie. It's got a very deep plot. But it, it moves quick, and then we were just talking about how we didn't take a whole lot of notes when we were watching it because you said the action keeps moving so long, so so quick. There's not much time to write stuff down. Yeah, it was. It, it did it. It had a smooth flow. I didn't remember it being as smooth, but yeah, there were there were long periods of time, like five minutes, ten minutes, where I didn't take any notes because things were happening, and there's not really anything to make fun of or to recognize as being outstanding, outside, of course, of uh, the future Snake Man we'll be talking about. Yeah, the Snake Man is the big takeaway. That's the one thing that if people do remember this movie, they remember this nightmare dream sequence with a monster called the Snake Man, which uh, much like a uh, little, what's the kid's name? I forget his name, Buddy. Much like buddy. Little, yeah, I'm a little Buddy. That Snake Man continues to haunt our dreams to this day. <laughs> it's true. I mean, really, I don't get scared. My horror movies never bothered me. I watched Nightmare on uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, back then and had no problems and Friday the 13th and all that kind of thing. But like I said, there's those very few that stuck with me forever. And Snake Man was one of them. Yeah. Again, not a coincidence that people of that era, the early 80s, would remember Medusa and the Snake Man as being things that really bothered them. They're very similar creatures, very similar effects. And yeah, just uh, we're going to have a lot to say when we get to him in the movie here. If anything else, you got you got poor Indiana Jones, man. It, it affected him for his life. You know, <laughs> snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Well, Spielberg is all over this podcast already. <laughs> okay you said this uh movie moves smooth it's all smooth and goes real well you know what i realized while watching this movie today the smoothest thing in this movie is the sexy sax music that keeps reappear uh, reappearing <laughs> yep i had notes on that a little, little later on the fact that 80s synth music and sexy sax music was like the key to this time period <laughs> Yeah, again, and I'm just shocked I have not covered this on Staff Picks yet. This is such a fun movie, and it's right up my alley. And I can tell it's already right up your alley, too. This is just one of those perfect little 
middling 80s movies. And I will say, I, I didn't see it in the theater like you did. I remember my friend Brian had it on Laserdisc. He'd invite me over to watch it. It was like the first movie he owned on Laserdisc. So this was one you'd show off to your friends because of the special effects. It was just one of those just one of those movies that was a big deal for kids of a certain age. Yeah. Uh, going real quick back to the sax music too, though. Mm-hmm. I, I had notes in here about the fact that we had things like uh, St. Elmo's Fire and we had um, the Lost Boys. You know, the saxophone made a very definite uh, impression on the on the 80s. And then it went away quickly after because, of course, it was Spielberg. <laughs> Spielberg away. And then Kenny G brought it back. <laughs> Okay, before we delve into the plot of this movie, and again, we may not make this an hour. This podcast might be very short because it's it's moved so briskly, this movie. But I want to talk about one other takeaway from this movie. And we've we've named most of the big ones, but I want to talk about the villain in this movie. Just because one of my all-time favorite, uh, Bill Simmons calls them that guys. Guys you see in a movie, you don't know their name, but you just recognize them. But this is his standout movie, I will say. His name, I even have to look this up. He's still one of my favorite actors. His name is David Patrick Kelly. He plays the evil dream warrior. I freaking love that guy. Me too. I agree 100%. I actually wrote down great B-list actor in The Crow, in Commando, in The Warriors, you know, mm-hmm. all these great 80s films. He was the bad guy because he looked like the bad guy. <laughs> he's got the creepiest looking face. He's about five foot five. He's a little dude, just weaselly. Man, he was fantastic. I love actors like that. And this, to me, this is his big standout movie, the evil dream warrior where he's squaring off against Dennis Quaid. He came in later in the movie that I remembered, too. I mean, his mm-hmm. his actual role. He wasn't really prominent in, in it until the last 25 minutes or so. Yeah. And he's only in one dream, technically, we ever see. Well, yeah. Poor buddy, though. <laughs> Poor buddy. Okay. So uh, anything else you want to say before we delve into the mid-80s masterpiece dreamscape here? Uh, just one thing. I, You know me. I love stop motion. I'm a big stop motion fan. You know, Harry Harryhausen, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And this makeup in this film was done by Craig Reardon. And he actually – I looked up his, uh, his bio and stuff like that and what he did in IMDb. And he did a lot of awesome stuff from the 80s. He did Chet in Weird Science, you know, that big blob Chet. Uh-huh. He did Sloth in The Goonies. He did The Creature on the Wing in the Twilight Zone, the movie, hmm. you know, and he did Dick Tracy. He did a whole bunch of stuff. And it's like, you know, you can see the quality of his work. I mean, his uh, his stop motion was it was a little bit rougher than some others. But the Snake Man, I watched a little snippet on after the uh, after the film and um, the, the quality of work that went into it and the motion on the face and things like that was actually uh, really, really smooth. It looked really nice. Yeah, that's funny, because I was specifically looking for that when I watched this movie today, because I haven't seen Dreamscape in about 10 or 15 years, and I'm like, there's no way the effects are going to hold up. It's going to look kind of hokey, but it really doesn't. They're really, for that era, it's really pretty solid, especially the Snake Man stuff. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, we got Norm. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, George Wendt, I forgot, from Cheers, one of his first movies here, or maybe one of his only movies, let's say that. Yeah, the other yep, yep. And he had such a giant role in this movie. <laughs> well, he has, I mean, he does, he is Mr. Exposition. He's got to show up, explain the plot, and get killed. Sorry, I'm going to spoil it that Norm dies. No! Dang it, I haven't watched the whole movie yet. <laughs> well, you did not prepare for this podcast correctly if you haven't seen the full movie yet. I got distracted. You know, there's a squirrel outside, and <laughs> it was Spielberg. I don't know. I think that's the new phrase for when we remove something we don't like. Yeah. Okay. This is completely off the topic, but you mentioned a movie there in the, in the animation effects that I want to mention. 
If ever there was a movie that was a big deal at the time and nobody ever, ever, ever talks about it anymore, Dick Tracy. Oh, yeah. That movie was huge. I recently rebought it on digital and uh, watched it again. And yeah, it was. It was. It was. Uh, Warren Beatty was kind of a weird choice for it. But no, uh, the movie actually works really well. And the characters, the, especially the character creation, is just fantastic. Okay. That's a movie that I had not considered doing on staff picks, but now I am. Like, why have I not thought of Dick Tracy? That was like, well, they had a Madonna tie in in there. They had McDonald's tie in. That was such a, that was like Jurassic Park big at the time. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Dreamscape. 1984, again, it's uh, right, right in the era when PG is becoming PG-13. We're going to get this movie that's uh, kind of creepy, kind of sexy, got a little too much sex for a PG movie, got a little little too scary for a PG movie, so it does get slapped with a PG-13. It comes out, what, five days after Red Dawn, is that right? Was it that? I didn't realize it was that soon. It's very similar. It's very close. Yeah, Red Dawn just barely beat it. Wolverines! And it's funny because it, if there's two actors I used to get confused when I was a kid, it was Patrick Swayze and Dennis Quaid. I always thought they were the same guy. And turns out they are not. <laughs> that you know. Maybe they were Spielberg. <laughs> okay. So anyway, Dreamscape. So, again, this movie's set in the world of dreams. It's probably more science fiction than anything. And the movie opens with a uh, dream. We, uh... The, there's kind of an underlying subplot in this whole movie that the president, played by Eddie Albert, is having nightmares about nuclear war, that he's accidentally going to start a nuclear war. It haunts him. So throughout these dreams, we'll see these like Terminator-esque dreams that he's having of an apocalyptic landscape and people on fire and people all irradiated. And it's just horrifying. And that's how we open the movie, right? Yep. That's what I had exactly there. I had Terminator 2 Apocalypse, you know, opening scene, basically. And the the odd thing, of course, now being past, uh, you know, 9-11 is that the Twin Towers are prominent in the background. <laughs> yeah. That's, so the world has been destroyed, but the Twin Towers still remain. That's this uh, alternate future we've learned here. Now, one thing I must say about, you know, getting uh, out of the dream, though, is that Max von Sydow. Oh, speaking, we forgot to mention Max von Sydow and Christopher Plummer in the same movie. All you need is Christopher Lee, and you've got the triumvirate you know, of, uh, of of awesome old actors. It is funny because, I was going to say, as a kid, I always got those guys mixed up as well. And even now, I wrote down in my notes Max von Sydow and Christopher Plummer, and I'm like, which one was which? I kind of forget which one was the good guy and which was the bad guy. <laughs> and I was going to mention Max's uh, awesome mustache. He had one heck of a mustache. Yeah, he did. He was the uh, the Silver Fox version of Tom Selleck here. There you go. Yeah, so the movie opens with Eddie Albert, the president, having these nightmares. And they're really scary nightmares he has. It's all red background and everything's on fire and the earth has, you know, been decimated by, uh, you know, nuclear weapons. And I think I read this movie came out like two weeks before Terminator. So it actually beat Terminator to doing stuff like that in the movies. Man. See, like I said, 1984, one of the best years for movies ever. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And Dreamscape is like the B tier of all these big movies. That's I think you're exactly right. That's what happened to it. Yep. Okay, so, yeah, we get the dream. And this that's the main storyline. People forget that if you haven't seen this movie in a while. The the main story is the president and his nightmares about World War III. And this is going to culminate in the, the climax of the movie later. But people kind of forget that because we have to go meet our star. This is Alex Gardner, played by... I was going to say a very young Dennis Quaid, but he's not. He's actually 30 when this movie came out. Oh, yeah? He's got his goofy little uh, little college boy smile and haircut. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was going to say, because that's this the stereotype in movies. It's the, the 
older actor with a younger actress, like a 40-year-old actor will be with a 20-year-old love interest. But that is not the case in this movie. You have Dennis Quaid and Kate Capshaw. And I always thought watching this movie, he's like 22 and she's like 35. But that's actually not true. I looked it up. They're almost the exact same age. She's just a month, uh, like a year older than him. They were both like 30. Okay, cool. Interesting. Okay, so explain who Alex Gardner is, our hero. Now, Alex Gardner, like I, like I mentioned before, Stephen King had, had a big run there with all, well, the whole the whole idea of telepathy and telekinesis. But telepathy, he's a telepath. And so he can control you know, people or like he can read people's minds, basically. And so we get introduced to him and he's telepathically rigging horse races. I don't know what he's doing. Is he getting in the mind of the uh, jockey and saying, hey, go faster now so I can win? <laughs> you know, I don't understand how he's rigging the horse races, but he's got telepathy that, you know, he can, can that he can read people's minds and he uses this for nefarious purposes. <laughs> yeah. So this guy, Alex Gardner, is apparently the top psychic, the top, uh, you know, telekinetic. He's, but they even say earlier in the movie that he's better than that. He has more talents even than that that we don't know of. So it's entirely possible he's just predi- or reading the future of the horse races. So but they're not exactly clear on what all his gifts are. Yeah, that's true. Because originally I thought, I thought they said telekinesis. And then I realized later on they said telepathy. So maybe I just, I just re- missed my own thoughts there because I wrote down telekinesis originally. Then went back and fixed my notes to say telepathy. So, yeah, apparently he has more than one. Yeah, they do say both in your defense. They say both. And I think this is a very clever screenwriting technique of just not giving specific details so you can give him any power you want. Yeah, or a sequel. Yeah. So, yeah, there was uh, this guy who was a college student. He was raised under this mentor, Philip Novotny, at a, a college. It was this parapsychological institute. And they worked with this guy to, you know, develop his gifts, to make sure he would use them for good as he got older, not evil. Very similar to, like, Firestarter or something like that, or The Fury. I don't know if you've seen that. But, mm-hmm, uh, yep. Okay, yeah, The Fury, another fun movie from earlier in this era. But, yeah, so he was trained to use his gifts for good, but at a certain point in his life, he ran away and chose not to do that anymore. He didn't like being a psych experiment, and he now just uses them to be a hustler and womanizer. Yes, womanizer. You know, you can see that the women are calling him on his answering machine saying, please call me back, please call me back. Yeah, and uh, he basically lives his entire life at the racetrack winning money on horse races because he knows how they're going to end. Yep, yep. And and they, they, they of course, you know, if you really want to get into debates and things like that, I got my note here. And being a professor, it's kind of rough when I see this, but there's the jockey's room and there's a sign that says jockey's room, but there's no apostrophe. What? I know. It's not possessive. All right. <laughs> I was going to say there was no flaws in this movie. Those bastards. <laughs> yeah, it just this loses all credibility for me of being in the real world now. <laughs> so wait, the real world people always use, you know, correct apostrophes. Is that what you're saying? Oh yes, I, I, especially after grading papers today for my college students, they, they always use the correct apostrophes. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that I enjoy about this movie is a lot of it takes place at the racetrack, especially at the start. And just on a personal note. I basically grew up grew up at the racetrack when I was a kid because my dad was a huge horse handicapper and race fan. And so he'd take me as little four-year-old son. So I grew up around these shady racetrack characters. So I know this world real well. <laughs> they were all Irish and uh, and uh, wanted more bet- wanted the winning bets. Yeah. And that was the thing. My dad actually tried to train me to become a horse handicapper. But not having telekinesis, I was not able to do it. So I failed my father. Dang it, man. <laughs> Got to bring up some demons here on this podcast. 
<laughs> anyway, so yeah, so so at the college nearby where Alex was trained, there's this big shot government agent named Bob Blair, and this is uh, Christopher Plummer as a super evil Bob Blair. We're not going to find out he's evil until later. He's putting together this team of dream warriors because they're working in dream sciences and stuff. And they figured out this technique to link people together, how, you know, analysts and helpers can go into people's dreams and help them sort out their issues. So he's putting together this team of dream warriors. And the legend has it that this guy, Alex Gardner, was the best of them all. So basically they have to find him and track him down and recruit him onto their team. I don't believe you can use the term dream warriors. I do believe that is a trademarked uh, title. So what would be the uh, approved nomenclature here? Uh, Dream fighters. Dream fighters or dream linkers, perhaps? (laughs) Um, Wait, this movie came first. This movie could say dream warriors. Screw Freddy. (laughs) See, now you're leading up to one of my favorite scenes, though. We got... Now, of course, like you said, they have to collect him, you know, and bring him back to this place to help out kind of thing or to to blackmail him. But the special agents will drive up to get him. And this is the point in the movie when I believe we have a Napoleon Dynamite type crossover because the special agents are driving a station wagon with wood paneling on the side. And so I immediately thought Napoleon Dynamite, you know, needed to borrow the car for something, you know, or mom, I'm trying to make a film here. I need a car. I have to go feed Tina, that fat lard. <laughs> I need the car. So, so that's the movie. That's the comparison you have to Dreamscape is Napoleon Dynamite. Yep, I figure these special agents are asking their mom if they can borrow the car. <laughs> we got to go get the bad guy or the good guy. I have to go chat with babes on the Internet. <laughs> we have to go into their dreams. All right. So, yeah, so these federal agents come pick up Alex. They track him down at the racetrack. And apparently people have been keeping tabs on this guy all his life because, as again, once like much like the Fury, Carry, Firestarter, he can be a really dangerous weapon if he falls into the wrong hands because he's got all these telekinetic gifts. So they've been following him for most of his life. They come round him up and they pull him back to the school, which is, what is the name of the school? Thornhill College? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah, so, and at, at first they basically just kidnap him, right? Yeah, they they bring him there and basically, you know, yeah, they just kidnap him, but they put him in a room. And here's another fun note I got. I ask, I wonder how many takes it takes him because he's in a room with a mirror, a two-way mirror. He knows it's a two-way mirror and he writes backwards on the mirror. Let's get on with it. Now, that's a true acting professional right there. You know, writing those words backwards. How many takes did that take? Yeah, I tried to do that as a kid. I think every kid tries that to figure out how to learn to write backwards. And yeah, so Dennis Quaid has been kidnapped and thrown into a room and they're kind of watching him through a two-way mirror. He just writes on the mirror because he's smarter than everybody. Let's get on with it. But he does, you know, spectacularly spell out all the words correctly backwards. So, you know, kudos to Dennis Quaid for his uh, acting practice here before the prep for the role. He had to learn that skill. It was a week of training. (laughs) Yeah, the, the first take, he like did it wrong. He had a couple of letters wrong and they tried to erase it. They're like, damn it, we used a permanent marker. Like, get a new mirror. (laughs) (laughs) they had to keep replacing the mirror (laughs) so yeah so uh he basically shows up there and he learns that there's this whole dream lab being put together and he can't figure out why they've uh recruited him and this is where we meet kate capshaw right dr jane devry yep and she has to mansplain to him what rem sleep is (laughs) i do like that scene yeah the, the smartest guy in the world alex gardner they explain to him how sleep works (laughs) <laughs> and of course 
we get one of the best lines in this area too. You know, from Alex, what you or what you do in effect is count boners. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is a a basically a uh, therapist lab where people come with their psychological problems, and these doctors have figured out a way to go into a person's dream to help you confront the issue and solve them. And she explains that one of the things we cure is uh, sexual dysfunction. So she said, well, they count how many boners people have, men have during the night to know if sexual dysfunction is physical or mental. So yeah, Alex says, oh, so I'm here to count boners. Awesome. <laughs> There's that PG-13 rating, boners. Now, you could do boners in a PG movie, I think. <laughs> oh, uh, now, we'll, we can talk about it later. I was going to ask you about this director in particular who had a movie named Gorp, and I don't remember. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. I have not. I, I don't know that movie. Yeah, neither do I, but it looks like up, it's both up, up both our alleys. It looks like kind of like a Kentucky Fried uh, movie uh, kind of film. Okay, I will keep an eye out for Gorp, the secondary offering from the director of Dreamscape. Okay, so so anyway, there we meet, we see this big dream lab that's been set up, and it's basically uh, how would you describe this dream lab to people who have never seen this movie before? Hey, it looks pretty comfortable. The chairs in there, you know, nice relaxing, reclining looking things, and now it looks like the typical '80s lab. You know, it's got buttons and lights and 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 in really bad eighties computers with, you know, words on them that, you know, are, are take up the whole screen, you know, with the green, the old green color, you know, a typical eighties, you know, science lab. Yeah. So, but the actual layout is it's like two recliners, like lazy boy recliners and two people lay down and sleep. And there's a mechanism that connects their two chairs together, goes into a computer in the middle. And somehow they're able to link the dreams between the psychic and the patient together. Yep. Yep, I thought that was for use for uh, Dr. Frankenstein and um, and the monster uh, to switch brains. So, so Dr. Frankenstein was the original student here of of, uh, of Dream Warriors and stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, early early days. Okay, so Alex is just thinks this is stupid. He's like, why would people go into each other's dreams? This is ridiculous. I, why would I want to do this? You know, I was a student at this college many years ago. I left. Why would I want to get back to this again? And this is where his old mentor comes out, Max von Sydow, playing Dr. Philip Novotny, who is really kind of the, the main star of the movie, who he, like, raised Alex, treated him as a son. And Alex instantly melts once he realizes his old mentor is in charge here. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, he said, you know, his, his mentor says, hey, you got the choice to work here. And then Alex is like, eh, I don't really want to. And he tries to escape. And then, then he gets blackmailed into it. But that's a little ways down the road here. Yes, but he does like Dr. Novotny. And Dr. Novotny is very affectionate to Alex, although he does point out, you know, you had every gift in the world, young man. You could have done anything. You have chosen to whore around and gamble and and hustle. He goes, I disapprove of your life choices, but I still love you. To charm the women. Of course, like you said, they do have a relationship, a friendship. So they go to the most uh, obviously named location in town, Village Pub. <laughs> the Village Pub is named Village Pub. You know, the car they're driving around in is probably named Car. I wish Dennis's, Dennis Quaid's character would have been named Dennis Quaid. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it should be Dreamscape College. <laughs> So anyway, Dr. Dream Warrior takes Dennis Quaid out to Village Pub, and he basically explains the whole plot of the movie. He says, uh, you know, let's pretend a man could psychically project himself into another man's dream. And like, and once inside, you could be an active participant or even shape it and alter it. 
And Alex is like, bullshit, you can't do that. And the doctor's like, we have done it twice. We've, we've two men already. It's, it's going, it's happening. Is, is Hugh Hefner still alive at this point in time? Oh yeah. Hugh Hefner lasted well into the two thousands. Well, you know, I'm just wondering for this project, you know, I mean, you might need a test subject. <laughs> you want to go into Hugh Hefner's dream? <laughs> well, you know, I think someone would want to go into Alex Gardner's dream with the amount of the tail he's getting. <laughs> there you go. Okay, yeah, so Alex isn't really sure he wants to do this, but he's kind of intrigued because the guy says, you know, only certain people in the world have the ability to go into people's dreams. Alex, I know you can do it. You're one of the rare people who has this gift. And uh, and Novotny, Novotny explains, like, the machine just hooks you up. The machine will hook your dream to his. You can go into his dream and interact with it, but you do all the work. And this is where the term comes up. It's called dream linking. Yep. And the and and in dream linking, the subconscious mind is where we actually get the name of the film, the dreamscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he throw he runs through that line real quick and I barely caught it. He's like, yeah, because uh, in therapy, we can get into the conscious. But in dream linking, we get into the subconscious, the dreamscape. So, yeah, that sets the stage for everything. And it's not like hokey, like some films, you know, make it so you know, so much of a diatribe and here's the whole story and here's what's going on. It's just enough to get you to say, okay, you know, I understand what's going on, but he didn't over explain it or it didn't, you know, become so, you know, out there that it's, it's distracting. Yeah. I was going to say the plot of this movie and the setup is really well done. Like it's intriguing. I think almost anybody would like to see that movie. Like you can get into going to people's dreams and cure them of their phobias or, you know, their uh, anxieties just by shaping what happens in their dream. Just the premise of that. There aren't too many movies that do things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll talk about the trailer at the end. But, yeah, um, I agree. There's not there's not too many. Just dream warriors. You know, I was going to say like five years ago, four or five years ago, my wife was reading a list of movies that are like underrated movies. Most people have never seen. And she read the synopsis of Dreamscape. She'd never seen this. She never grew up with it. And she's like, hey, we should watch this. Dennis Quaid's in it. It's about dreams, people going in there and battling and changing people's phobias. And like, this sounds really interesting. And I'm like, my God, that's one of my favorite movies. How you don't you've never seen that. So like she'd never heard of it. Just the premise of it intrigued her. And she suggested we rent it. Nice. Nice. Good. Good call. Yeah. So then I had to buy it. So I was able to watch it again today. OK, so so Alex decides, well, I don't really want to do this because I don't do psychic crap anymore. I don't do academia, academia anymore. I don't do academia anymore. But he agrees to kind of watch and he hangs out there for the night. And this is this is where we meet one of the other uh, main characters in this movie, Buddy, the little kid. Right. Well, you you missed there was a real quick scene with Norm. You know, we got to We got to do Norm. Okay, yeah. George Went plays a horror author modeled after Stephen King, who is here doing research for a book on dreams and killing people in dreams, and he's heard about this whole thing. So as Dr. Novotny's explaining it to Alex, you see George Went off to the side just observing them. And you know, if anybody could blend in with the scenery in a bar, it's Norm. I was waiting for Cliff to show up. <laughs> to, to explain how dreams work to uh, Norm. You know, Normie, it's the, uh, the Ram cycle. <laughs> yeah, Cliff's gonna mansplain to Norm. Cliff, Cliff was Spielberg out. <laughs> they they digitally erased Cliff Clavin from this movie. <laughs> now, before he gets to Buddy, though, I did have a comment here. Mm-hmm. Is that as Alex originally came into the facility, he saw a security guard sitting outside this room, which you know to make sure he's guarding the dream stuff. But from here on out, I wonder how the budget worked because not only is this guy not a very good security guy because he's gone from the chair later on, 
But later on in the film, his chair is gone too. What? I know, he's not a very good security guard. They Spielberg the chair out of the movie. <laughs> they turned it into a, a, a handset instead of a chair. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, crack security in the Dream Lab only exists for about the first 15 minutes of the movie. After this, Alex will repeatedly sneak in and out anywhere he wants. It's a union job. <laughs> yeah, well, we only have security till 5 p.m. Then it, leave it to the wolves. So as Alex goes in for the first day in the Dream Lab, he watches a psychic named Ed Sims, who's uh, one of the two people who has been able to do this. And Ed Sims is dream linking with a little boy named Buddy. And it does not go well for poor Ed Sims. No, I didn't even realize he had a name. <laughs> yep, the guy is trying to help him Buddy's dream. And uh, let's just say he's going to need a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Yeah, so... One of the subplots in this movie, this little kid, Buddy, has these horrific nightmares that that just torment him. He can't sleep. He's just a nervous wreck at all times. So they sent in this guy, Ed Sims, to go figure out what's going wrong, what, figure out what's going on. And it's so scary in this kid's mind that Ed Sims has a nervous breakdown and turns catatonic. So this is kind of the stakes in this movie. Watch out if the dream is too scary because it can kill you. Yeah. Well, you know what the hardest part about eating a vegetable is, don't you? Oh, no. What's the punchline to this one? The wheelchair. <laughs> That's a Norm MacDonald joke. Well done, my friend. <laughs> poor poor, poor uh, Ed is now a vegetable. Yeah, so at the start of the movie, one of the two psychics gets becomes a vegetable and gets wheeled off to the, the loony bin up in Tokus with Teddy Duchamp's father. And uh, so, so, yeah, so there's only going to be two dream warriors once Alex joins. But that's kind of the stakes here. This little kid, Buddy, has these really scary dreams. Alex will have to go into one later. But after the experience, Alex has to go to the bathroom. And it's the quickest bathroom break ever. And he didn't wash his hands. <laughs> Damn it. He's not being COVID friendly. <laughs> so maybe Alex Gardner started COVID. Maybe it wasn't a bat in China. Perhaps it was Alex Gardner at... Uh, I already forget the name of the school. 84, that's where it started. It's a it's a telepathic, non-hand-washing disease. Well, he does have many gifts, so who knows. <laughs> okay, so let's get Alex to join the team of Dream Warriors. So this is where Dr. Novotny, his mentor, says, you can join us if you want. And Alex's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to join you. And Dr. Novotny just blackmails him, just turns into a straight-up dick. And says, <laughs> well, you know, when we were researching you, I had government agents look into all your gambling winnings. It turns out you've never paid taxes. So perhaps if you don't want to get audited, you could join our team. And Dennis Quaid's like, you bastard. <laughs> well, if you put it that way. Yeah, there's a really funny jump cut. Alex is like, no, never. I'll never do it. I will never, ever, ever work for you again. And we cut to the next scene of him sitting there with all the electrodes on his head. Yep. <laughs> just looking all defeated oh golly of course you you, you got the you got the uh the shape test the, t the telepathic shape test which reminds you of a, maybe another movie oh yeah a little ghostbusters here <laughs> where's bill murray yeah so they they recruit him into being a dream warrior he's reluctant he doesn't want to do it he just you can just see by his body language he thinks he's better than this it's beneath him but there is a hot doctor, Dr. DeVries, Kate Capshaw, giving him the test. So he kind of perks up a little when she's around because he can read her mind and he knows that she has the hots for him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. These are the two main characters. They will have sexual tension between them, culminating in a scene later, which we do have to bring up the R word technically. Is this technically a dream rape later? But we will talk about it. Oh, you're stealing my thunder. 
Oh, I'm sorry. You wanted to drop the phrase dream rape on my list. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I, I never thought that because I'm a pure and innocent soul. <laughs> okay. So, so Dennis, or, so Alex is in, he's joined the team and it's basically him and one other dream warrior who are going to go into people's dreams and solve people's problems. And this is where we meet the other dream warrior and the guy that we love. And we already talked about him earlier. The character's name is Tommy Ray Glattman played by David Patrick Kelly. And boy, is this guy a little bastard. Oh, well, you can tell right away. I mean, the way he's playing that saxophone, my ears are hurting. <laughs> yeah, he steals Dennis Quaid's saxophone and plays it. And it is not sexy sax music. It's the opposite of that. <laughs> it, it's, it's Kenny G gone wrong. <laughs> yes. I really hope Kenny G is not a listener of Staff Picks. <laughs> well, if he is, he's getting some shout outs. Maybe he'll sell a few more albums. So, yeah. So explain who Tommy Ray Glattman is to people who have never seen this movie. Dude, you don't even have to explain Tommy Ray. You see Tommy Ray. You know instantly he's the bad guy. You know, they don't, they don't it's not like they, they hid that. They forecast this so much. It's like you look at him and you get that creep factor, you know, and say in the dream he's a, a cerebral peeping Tom, you know. But, yeah, Tommy Ray is, is that character, you know. He's, he's typecast, but he's typecast for a reason, you know. So Tommy Ray is the other psychic he uh has the ability to go into dreams and uh i believe that i can't remember if this, at this point they've talked about him going into buddy's dream or not not yet not yet no nobody's in buddy's dream yet okay so but anyhow he's he's like the hot shit around there he's uh he's the boss you know he's the he knows he's you know a badass and that he's the biggest um psychic and that they can't do without him yeah he describes himself as the neil armstrong of dream linking you know, <laughs> and so right off the bat, Tommy, who's only like five foot five, this little weaselly guy, got a mean looking face, kind of has a permanent sneer, just kind of sees Alex, Dennis Quaid. And he's like, uh, he's threatened by him. I don't want this new kid coming in. Everybody says this new kid's hot shit. I don't like you. So Tommy's like, I know you. You want my secrets, don't you? And Dennis Quaid's like, I don't really want anything. And Tommy's like, I get free reign around here. Novotny lets me do whatever I want because I'm the only one who can actually do this. And mm -hmm. Every, here's a great little quote here from Tommy. This is about uh, the last guy, uh, Ed Sims, who just was in a catatonic state because he went into the scary monster dream where Tommy Ray says, no one can do this but me. And Alex says, well, what about Edward Sims? I thought he could do it, too. And Tommy Ray's like, they had to carry him off last night in a basket. <laughs> yeah. And Alex is like, well, Novotny thinks I can do this, too. And Tommy's like, I'll order your basket. <laughs> you know you know who he reminded me of in this film a little bit too but uh, based mostly on his face though is um joaquin phoenix from joker you know he, i got some joaquin phoenix joker kind of vibes from him on this one yeah i was going to compare him to either joaquin phoenix he looks like him or uh doug hutchison who plays percy in the green mile the little prison guard oh yeah yeah i can see that yeah, these little weaselly villains, they're just perfect. And I, I love this guy. I wish David Patrick Kelly was in more movies because he's so perfect. Like, he could, you could not find a better villain ever. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Okay, so Alex has met his enemy, the other dream warrior. Uh, he's learned the stakes that if you go into dreams, you could have a heart attack. You can go catatonic if it's too scary. He's a little nervous, but it is time for his first dream hookup. And they're going to give him a uh, very easy first test subject, a steel worker, right? The beer commercial. He's going to end up in a beer commercial with that steel worker. Yeah. 
so this is some guy apparently they they do a lot of test subjects with he's like a good first dream test for a lot of these dream warriors so alex is going with this this steel worker and have a just a very benign dream and dr novotny even tells him you know the first time just observe once you're in the guy's dream don't do anything just look and watch and that that is not what will happen (laughs) this first dream sequence is one of those things i hope you don't have a fear of heights you know you know, and, and you know, recently I've been looking at a second career, and so I've been studying OSHA and all that. So seeing this entire scene just makes me cringe. Like he's not wearing his personal fall arrest or personal arrest fall system, and you know, this is dangerous. I thought you were going to look at a second career as a dream linker. <laughs> well, you know, I I gave up on that dream, and 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 Dr. Novotny kind of tried to get me back in, but <laughs> he didn't have anything on me. Okay, so yeah, the first dream I'll try to describe this to people who have never seen it. It's uh. It's uh, Alex, it's Dennis Quaid on top of a building with a steel worker, and there's no safety harness, there's nothing. But again, it's very dreamlike, and I love the effects. Again, you think they'd be hokey old 80 effects, but I think they're pretty cool. You have like the clouds are moving at a little too fast of a pace, and the colors are just a little too bright. It just is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree, I agree with you there. Is that it's that it's that um, kind of crawl, kind of um, you know, just just the oil and the and the clouds in this particular scene, the sky is at least blue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, the clouds are flying by, and it is it, it, it's meant to throw you off. Yeah, and all the dream sequences are really cool in this movie. Even having not watched this movie in 15 years, I remembered, even without taking notes, I remember, okay, there's the building with the steelworker, then the snake man, then the sex dream. I remember all the dream sequences, even though I kind of forget the details in between. So as a as a tw- uh, 10 or what, 11-year-old kid, you said you had a crush on Kate Capshaw back then? I didn't really at the time. It was just one of the few sex scenes in a movie I could watch. So by definition, <laughs> it's just when I watch it now, I'm like, wow, she was pretty hot. I don't know why I was, didn't really notice that when I was a kid. I think pretty much any movie that had women that were either half naked or naked were pretty much the, the epitome of a teenage boy watching films in the 80s. PG-13, those bastards. <laughs> and, uh, we're going to get in a lot of trouble here, but anybody who is our age has fond memories of the movie Career Opportunities with Jennifer Connelly. Oh, yeah, because Target's awesome. Yeah, and we can say that. See, it sounds like we're creepy because she was like 15, but it doesn't matter because we were 12. So she will always be older than us, so it's okay. Shoot, I couldn't even remember. I, I, could, I couldn't give you a solid definite on what my movie would be, but I don't want to go that route with this and go so far off tracks right now. Yeah, I mean, in a movie where we delve into people's subconsciousness, I, I don't think we want to do that on this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to dream tonight. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, the first dream is Dennis Quaid up on a building, and he's talking to the steel worker, and the steel worker gets knocked off the side of the building by this swinging girder. And Dennis Quaid, under strict instructions not to interact with the dream participant, uh, decides to interact anyway, tries to go save the guy, and then Dennis ends up falling off the side of the building. And it's a kind of a scary scene. He almost plummets to his death. And But right before he falls off the building and hits the ground, Dr. Novotny wakes him up, and uh, Dennis Quaid wakes up, wakes up, and he's just exhilarated. He's like, my God, I was in that guy's dream. It was so real. Yeah, and the question I have on this one here is, how did uh, you know did Novotny know the exact moment to pull Alex out of the dream, you know? I guess there's a lot of luck going on here, because had he hit the ground, 
be the end of the movie. Yeah, and that's another takeaway from this movie that people tend to remember is that this had never really been in a thing in the movies before where if you die in your dream, you die in real life, which is kind of an old wives' tale, but it's presented as fact in this movie. So, like, I don't know if that's true in real life or not, but is the movie presents it very much as fact. Like, they can't die in these dreams or they have a heart attack right there in the chair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. So, yeah, uh, Dr. Novotny pulls him out, and Alex is going, woo Yeah, this is great. You know, and then we get to see Tommy Ray again um, with, his, with his high fashion sense. If, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. I don't know if you noticed his shirt. And speaking of that, the fashion sense in this entire movie is going back to that whole uh, Napoleon Dynamite kind of thing in that they definitely had no budget for clothes. <laughs> but Tommy Ray um, had a paisley shirt on, you know. Nothing better than the 80s with a paisley shirt. It looks like an 18th century king's collar, too. It's like a, <laughs> an old nobility he's wearing up there. Because that's Tommy Ray. He's the king of this this uh, industry. So he's just watching you know, Alex do his first dream sequence, and he's just watching and glaring because he does not like this new punk kid showing up. The new kid on the block, man. He's going to ruin my game. <laughs> so... Here's where we meet the big baddie of the movie that Alex just had his first dream sequence, his first dream link. It all worked well. He's very excited. And now he meets Bob Blair, played by uh, Christopher Plummer again, who is like a huge government co-op guy. I forget later they say he's like above the CIA. He's like he's even above the president because they say presidents come and go. But Bob Blair stays. He's like the most powerful man in security in America. Yep, yep. But apparently he doesn't have any skills to unstrap people or, or remove a strap from somebody's hand. Yes. Dennis Quaid is in a, uh, what is that, a machine? I always forget the name. That's not MRI. It's the other one. Uh, cat, scan? cat scan? Yeah, it's in a cat scan. And Bob Blair's talking to him. Yeah, and Dennis Quaid's like, could you undo the straps? He's like, I am unable to do that. Sorry. Well, the cat scan says X-ray. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, the budget was low on this movie, although the effects were good, so we can forgive it. Village pub, X-ray, clock, table. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, you can't. You can't unstrap Alex. He says we need a nurse to do that. <laughs> I didn't realize this was a high-tech nursing skill. Yes. Can you unstrap me? No, I'm sorry, HIPAA violation. I cannot touch you. <laughs> so, anyway, so yeah, so Bob Blair explains. He's like basically, uh, you know, congratulations on your first Dream Link. We have such high hopes for you. And Dennis Quaid's like, well aren't you from the government? And he's like, well, why was the government involved with this dream linking? And we'll find out later why and Bob Blair says, let's just say I have an investment in this property, blah, blah, blah. But he does explain now that you're here, you have to play by the rules. No sneaking around, no looking in people's files, figuring out what's really going on. So just, he's kind of warning him, just don't ask questions, do what you're told and you'll be treated well here. Well, and one of the things about this too, in all seriousness, is that again, they, they could go the easy route and make it show that Bob Blair is the bad guy right here, you know. They could make him seem bad and all that kind of stuff. But right now he's still I mean, he's a government agent, which pretty much is a red flag, but he's not giving away that he's the bad guy yet or what his motive is, mm-hmm. you know, really. And so it's it's nice that they don't do that, especially so early, because it still takes a little while to be sure that Bob Blair is the bad guy. Meanwhile, we know Tommy Ray is a bad guy in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, because he just has a shirt that says bad guy on it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Bob Blair, I actually I just, uh, I know we're kind of making jokes about this movie, but it's really well written, I think, just the way it's paced out. And when you learn that Bob Blair is the bad guy, and his motives make sense, like everything, all the logic in this movie does make sense, which I appreciate, because like, it's a hokey sci-fi plot where people are jumping into dreams and fighting. But like, it actually makes sense why Bob Blair would want to kill the president later. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and then you mentioned earlier trained assassins, you know, I mean, what better way, you know, like that's why I compare it to Inception, you know, Inception is changing somebody's mind inside their, their, their dream or their head basically. But, you know, the same idea here, but with assassins, you know, you go, you knock somebody out in their sleep and they're gone and, and there's no way to trace it back to anybody. Yeah. And Bob Blair will have a speech later in the movie that's very logical where he says, you know, Think of how this would work for wars and political enemies. People are trying to challenge our country, national security. We could just link into Saddam Hussein's dream and Osama bin Laden's dream and kill them there. It's not a diplomatic event. Like, there's amazing things you could do with this for national security. And he's not wrong. That's the thing. It falls into the wrong hands. But that concept, he is not incorrect. Can we get rid of the Kardashians? (laughs) I'm not sure. These are ethical questions that scholars have grappled with for years. (laughs) <laughs> so okay here we go so alex is uh all the cards are on the table now alex is a dream linker he knows all the people all the power players and we're going to set the stage for him to go into little buddy's dream the little kid but first he has to go meet him outside and bond with him yep and these are a couple of marketing uh chances here for the movie to make some money you know, with buddy's bonding scene because De- uh, Dennis is where or Alex is wearing New Balance shoes and socks. Thought missed marketing opportunity, and poor Buddy is outside in the sun, freckle boy, and um, he's got dark circles under his eyes. You know, another marketing opportunity. Why don't you put in some uh, Sunny Delight or something like that? You know. <laughs> It's a missed marketing opportunity. (laughs) Well, you know, Buddy's being tormented by the snake man every night. He can't sleep. I think the very last thing he would be drinking is Sunny Delight. He's not happy. (laughs) Sunny Sadness? Yes. Now, did you catch the actor who plays Buddy? Did you see his name? Uh, No, I didn't. That is Corky or Corey Yothers. That's uh, from Family Ties, Tina Yothers' little brother. Oh, no way. I didn't see that. Yeah, look in the credits. It's like Corky Bumpy bumper yathers or something but that's the same last name i know that's her brother that's hilarious so buddy is the most pathetic little kid around like like jason said you know blonde fair skin sitting out in the sun just roasting sad got the huge sad face he's in a wheelchair <laughs> poor kid and alex for all his faults is actually pretty good with kids and alex kind of bonds with him right he kind of becomes a big brother to him yeah, and it's not in a weird, creepy way either. He's he's actually kind and compassionate, you know, because Buddy's suffering. He says he says I got this awful monster in my dream, and Alex is asking, you know, you know, telling him about, you know, well, this is what we can do. I'm here to help you, and he's actually being compassionate about it, you know. Yeah, that's the thing is where Alex will become the hero of the movie. He's not just some guy jumping into women's dreams to uh, dream rape them. He's a good guy, but yeah, he he bonds with Buddy, and he says, you know. When I was a kid, I had nightmares, too, and I eventually grew out of it. And he's like, you know, if you ever want to talk to me, buddy, you can trust me, and I'll listen. And Buddy really does like him, but he's like, okay, I will. And Alex really feels a sense of empathy for this kid, which will culminate in him in about 20 minutes jumping into this kid's scary dream to help him confront his nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's skip through with some plot here. The So the president's still having his World War II dreams. He's terrified that he's going to start World War III, that there's all these nuclear bombs that he has access to. He thinks he's going to start something. And this is where his friend Bob Blair goes out and visits him, and the president says, you know, what I'm thinking of doing is disarming our country. I'm afraid we have too many weapons here in the U.S. It's scary. I have so much power. I don't like that. And he tells Bob Blair, and Bob Blair, as the security chief of the U.S., does not like that. He thinks that would weaken the U.S. not having nuclear weapons. So you can see the machinations of where his mind to his idea to assassinate the president is going to come from. 
yeah, you start seeing some of the darkness to Bob Blair there a little bit. It's like he doesn't like that idea one bit. You know, it's it's a it's because the president's going to make a disarmament treaty with the Russians and stuff. And Bob Blair's like, oh, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come again. Excuse me. I don't think so. Now, one thing about this scene, too, is that, again, going back to the old village pub name, you know, we got the helicopter landing with Bob Blair over at the president's uh, house. I don't know where he's at, you know, but it's obviously a high ranking helicopter because it's got an American flag sticker on it. (laughs) Does it just say helicopter on the side, too? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you can't see it. It's spinning too fast. And I know you said you didn't know which uh, house the president was in. I think it's called the White House. But it didn't look like that. It looks like he's like in the middle of the countryside. I know. Yeah, I had to set you up for that joke. I just like that. Uh, okay. Yes, yes. And of course, um, you know, with, with budgeting, you know, I said the clothing is weird with budgeting. The whole fact that the uh, station wagons weird with budgeting. President, of course, you know, the most powerful man in the world has wicker furniture. <laughs> Okay, I'll give you that one. The wicker furniture, the president. Okay, so so Bob Blair basically floats the idea to the president where in his mind he's like, this president's dangerous. He's going to disarm the U.S. I need to stop him. I can kill him in a dream. No one will even realize it. I'm doing a favor to the country. But he floats it to the president as, come to my dream lab out in California. We can help you. We have people that help people with their problems and dreams. So the president's going to fall for it. and It's going to set the stage for Act 3. Yes, it does set the stage for Act 3. The president's got to get to the Dream Factory, you know, and, and get taken care of there. Okay, but but that's Act 3, and we're currently in Act 2. And now we're going to have the dream that I, I'm really surprised, honestly, my parents let me watch this movie when I watch this now, and I see the sex dream right here. Yep. It reminds me of RoboCop, you know. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is the scene that really got this movie the PG-13, I believe. Maybe. Well, there's a couple of reasons. But So Alex wants to go into his first dream and be an active participant, and he meets this couple, and basically it's this nebbish older man and his hot young trophy wife, and she's like, my husband, he has these weird dreams, and he always ends up crying out on the front lawn, and he can't get an erection, and it's so, we don't know what's wrong, he can't perform, and so Alex agrees to go into this guy's dream and figure out what his sexual problems were, are, and uh, yeah, this this is a goofy scene. Goofy, but still fun. You know, and there's some like throw, the throwaway scenes like there's a there's a one area where they walk through. It's totally red lights, you know, so it made me think of a red light district kind of thing. I mean, it, I'm guessing that's the intent. But, you know, but yeah, poor, poor George, man, he's he's afraid that his wife's going to be having an affair with him. And the actor that played George, he died back in June. Sad. Thank you for bringing down the podcast. <laughs> yeah. As we talk about these wild sex dream, rest in peace. <laughs> hey he had his moment in the sun <laughs> he did he had a good he was, yeah, yeah he had a good hot wife he was doing well for himself but yeah this dream it opens with dennis quaid linking up to this nebbish older guy and seriously when they're going into the dream all the sounds you hear are women moaning and having orgasms i'm like how did my parents let me watch this movie <laughs> they were in the other room <laughs> That you can hear. You can hear. It's not even a visual. It's, I will not try to replicate the sound, but that's what it is. But yeah, it's just he goes into this sex dream, and it's basically this guy has all these these fears that his wife is banging all his friends and his neighbors and his brother and his friend Fakuda. It's just a it's a weird scene with like circus music. But again, at the end of the day, Dennis Quaid does solve the guy's problem. Oh, he's afraid his hot wife will cheat on him, which is probably not an unrealistic fear. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, she's having, he's, she's having an affair with everybody. Her bro- his brother in front of the kids, <laughs> and, you know, other friends are under the bed waiting for their turn. You know, there's the priest and the gardener there waiting, you know. So, yeah, everybody's going to have their turn except for the husband. Yeah, and this is another scene I think I read in the trivia that was different in the theatrical version. When they go upstairs to see the wife cheating on the husband, she's flat out topless and riding a bunch of guys. It's like softcore Cinemax porn. But in the version Jason and I have now that was later released on DVD, they zoomed in so she's not topless anymore. You don't see her on top of people. So this was one of the scenes that I think got the PG-13. This is baloney. I know. Terrible. (laughs) Where's the unrated director's cut of Dreamscape? Come on now. (laughs) Yeah, so... So that's the last goofy scene in the movie. It'll pretty much all be intense from here on out. Is now Alex has finally helped this guy in his dream. And now he goes to the Dr. Novotny and says, I want to go in Buddy's dream, the little kid's dream who's being tormented by the snake. I want to go in there. I'm going to help him fight this demon. And the doctor says, no way. It's way too dangerous. And do we have a flip-flop on that again? <laughs> but one thing I wanted to bring up, too, on this is that there is a, a description uh, about the Sanoi in Malaysia, mm-hmm. who are known as the dream people, and their children are never taught are taught to never lose control in a nightmare and that they had to face their fears and conquer them. So when Alex goes to Buddy, he says, you have to take care of this. You know, I will be there to help you. So Alex will be there in the dream, but Buddy will have to fight off the scary monster by himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here we go. It's Alex is going to jump in the dream. And again, Dr. Novotny is totally against this. He's already had one dream warrior die in this process. But Alex basically says, I'm going to help this kid or I leave right now. Now I'm blackmailing you. You let me help this kid out. So he goes in with uh, Tina Yother's little brother. And uh, <laughs> he says, you know, he sees him before the, the dream link and says, I'll be there with you today. I will help you. We'll fight this monster together. And the kid really uh, is uh, thankful. And now we get, honestly, one of the scariest 10 minutes of any movie in the 80s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Buddy's afraid of the snake man, but then you see the snake man, you're like, well, I can see why. Yeah, I'm scared of the snake man. <laughs> yeah. So the next, what, like you said, 10 minutes or so is having to uh, run away and fight and run away and fight, do what you can, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of good sets. And like you said before, the color and the and the way that the creepiness of the backgrounds are add to the uh, tension that is being built up around the snake man. Yeah, this whole scene is just terrifying. It's They're in a haunted house and it's all, you know, strobe light effect and it's lightning and thunder out. It's very loud and dark and there's just creepy house and then Buddy the little kid gets grabbed by this monster from the outside and you don't see his face right away until you realize it's a dude with human feet and a tail and like human hands but a cobra's head and huge fangs and it's all stop motion and it is creepy as shit that's all i can say yeah and uh, like i said before I, I watched the little making of the creature and the test the screen tests on it and it's got these just oversized eyes and giant fangs and the face looks you know i mean there's the one that looks more like a snake and the one that looks like a combination of a snake and a human mm-hmm. but the snake and the human one's even creepier because the eyes are just bulging and and you know you don't want to see that in a dream or in life yeah i mean this is without question scarier than any pg movie of this era with the exception of maybe poltergeist or some of the scenes in gremlins yeah but like the snake man is right up there with the clown and poltergeist i gotta say yep like i said that poltergeist clown i don't have a fear of clowns but that damn clown man yeah i i have a fear of houses in uh in southern california not even so much of the clown it's that damn house (laughs) 
All right. So anyway, the snake man confronts them and chases them. And it's just a legitimately scary scene for a PG, you know, mild movie. But at the end, Dennis Quaid grabs the snake man and holds him tight. And little buddy takes an ax. And I kind of forgot how graphic this was. He just starts chopping the snake man like right into his midsection with an ax and then cuts his head off. So buddy, buddy conquers his fears and kills the snake man. Yeah, and that axe is oversized too, so it's a giant, giant axe. You can see the blood coming out of the snake and stuff. But um, one thing about the snake before he got killed, though, is that the snake actually ends up in Shadow Puppet Theater eating Buddy's dad. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, you're right. There's a scene where they run by Buddy's dad, and then you see Shadow Snake eating Shadow Buddy's dad, complete with the munching and crunching sound effects. Yep, you know, it's a, it was Shadow Puppet Theater, but you know something bad's going on, and, and and Buddy's dad doesn't give a crap about Buddy, you know, he's like, eh, whatever. You know, I was just thinking this was like a mild PG movie that somehow got a PG-13. I'm actually changing my opinion of that the further we get in this podcast. I think this is closer to an R than a PG. Oh, really? Okay. And then there's a, there's some definite blood and gore and guts and stuff like that. Not not as bad as some others, you know, once we get to Friday the 13th uh-huh. and Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, for for the, the the tame audience of the time, yeah, this was this was pretty pretty uh, rough. Yeah, the two topless scenes, the sex, whole sex scene in the train, the chopping of the snake man, the snake man scene, some of the nightmare Im- imagery at the end. I think this is closer to an R. So I'm revising my stance on Dreamscape. Don't even talk to me about the topless scenes. God damn it. I need, I need the unrated director's cut now. They've taken the topless scenes from us in Dreamscape. This this is what our lives have come to here in Nazi Germany. <laughs> they're they're incepti- inceptioning us. They never happened. Yes. Damn you, Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, there's Spielberg out of our head. So after Alex helps Buddy conquer the Snake Man, he goes in the cafeteria and he's sketching a little thing of the drawing of the Snake Man. And the evil dream warrior uh, Tommy comes by and sees the Snake Man drawing. And he's like, that thing really scared you, huh? And Alex is like, yeah, that really did. And Tommy just kind of looks at it and says, huh. And this will come back later because Tommy will bring the Snake Man back later in the finale. Spoiler. Yeah, well, even even I wrote my notes here. I said even knowing the outcome, you know, the film, they completely forecast his role as the Snake Man. It's like there's no mystery about it. You know, it's like, oh, okay, it's him. Well, that's the thing. A movie doesn't have to be a surprise if it's laid out perfectly and told well. Things don't have to surprise you. They just have to make sense why they would happen. That's I've said that often about you know Survivor seasons and reality TV editing as well. Yeah, Survivor. Don't get me started on Survivor. So Alex has conquered the snake man. He's the big man on campus. He's the cock of the walk. He's walking around now. Tries to go hit on uh, Jane. This is uh, Kate Capshaw. She wants nothing to do with him, even though she has the hots for him. She wants to be professional because she's the doctor. So he tries to kiss her. She rebuffs him. Anyway, he's going to go out to a restaurant, and this is where he's going to meet Norm from Cheers again, where Norm will basically play exposition and explain the entire what's going on in the movie. Norm! Yes. I, I thought with Kate Capshaw's, Kate Capshaw's kiss, he just pushes himself on her and kisses her. It's like in this day and age with the Me Too movement, yeah, that wouldn't fly. Well, yeah, and this, yeah, this isn't even the dream sequence later. So yeah, he's gonna twice get in trouble. Yeah, but yep, yeah, of course we're back to Norm, and he is explaining what's going on. He brings out his book and says, "I'm an author," and Bob Blair is not a good guy, you know. Yeah, he's, this is where he explains Bob Blair is one of the most powerful men in government. 
Like, he is covert intelligence. He's the head. He's the number one security agent in the country. Why is he working on this stupid little dream project? And he warns Alex. He's like, be very careful. I don't think you know what you're into here, that there's something going on, and Bob Blair's behind it, and be careful. Yep. And and so now we know that something's up with Bob Blair more than, more than meets the eye. Yes. And, and the scene ends with Norm from Cheers seeing that people are watching him. There's like government agents watching him. So he runs out the door. So if you've ever wanted to see George Went run, there you go. See, and again, the movie just lost credibility right there. <laughs> they brought in a stunt double, a stunt norm. <laughs> you ask me to run in a movie, I'd be like, yep, I need somebody to fill in for me. <laughs> okay, so Alex knows that maybe something nefarious is going around along with this dream plan, and he goes back to the office. And this is the scene, again, that's a little questionable, although I'll make the argument it's really not that questionable, where he sees that uh, Kate Capshaw is sleeping on the couch, and he sits kind of near her and tries to fall asleep because he wants to jump into her dream because, in the words of Borat, he'd like to have some sexy time. <laughs> or at least get in her dream. Yeah, see what she's thinking about. But yeah, you know, and the thing is, and I, I forgot to mention this before, but um, in regards to where they meet, they meet on a train, right? So it's Jane on a train. It rhymes, but the point is not that. The point is there are a lot of trains in this movie. You know, we have we have many train scenes. The president in the opening opening scene, he's on a train. Jane's on a train. They're back on a train later, you know, and then at the end of the movie, they're going to a train. I'm like, there's again, missed marketing opportunity. <laughs> so you think this should have been sponsored by Amtrak? Exactly. You know, money, money, man. They, they needed it to get a better car. OK, so here we go with the sexy time dream sequence, which is. I mean, this is a legitimately hot scene. This is like a Cinemax scene in a PG kids movie where he meets her on the train and she's there and the sexy sax is going. It's in her dream. And, you know, she already has the hots for him. So they see each other in the dream and he leans down, uncrosses her legs, slides himself between her. I won't I won't say too much more. Lifts her up. But, yeah, it's a very uh, not quite as graphic as it could have been because they toned it down on DVD. But it's a really hot scene for a 12 year old kid to watch in a movie. Bow, chicka, chicka, bow, bow. Yes. I uh, I put my notes in here though, of course, you know, and, and I and I verified with you beforehand this is okay. I said he said it's basically a dream rape. I mean he's 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 having his way with her in her dream. But I thought, of course, that dream rape probably wouldn't be as marketable as dreamscape. <laughs> so dream rape was the R-rated title. <laughs> that's yeah, that's the that's the back of the video store, you know, behind the curtain, you know, marketed one. Okay, two things. The first one I gotta say is she even says later why it's technically not rape because it happens in a dream, so it never actually happens. But I have just have pointed out that the last movie you did or the first movie you did was Clash of the Titans, and I remember we had a huge discussion in that about you know. Zeus and the half of mythology is Zeus raping people, which is a, a fact. I'm not making that up. So like, is that just my thing? I get you on movies and we accidentally wander into rape discussions. <laughs> rape and snakes. <laughs> There's some something Freudian about that. Yeah, sorry. We're, I apologize. We're laughing about this, but it's just a, the coincidence there is amusing me. Now I do have some questions about this dream rape scene, though. No, it's a dream, dream romance. Let's call it that. Dream romance. These are some very important questions I must pose, and I hope you have answers for these. Can you make your penis larger in a dream? Very important. Very important. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not as scholarly in this subject as perhaps Dr. Philip Novotny, but Tommy Lee Glavin does say later in the movie, in a dream, you can do whatever you want. Haven't you figured that out yet? So yes, I believe you can make a 
mountain-sized penis in the dream if you wanted to. Okay, these are these are important. I, I'm writing this down. And then, um, do you need dream protection? You know, with Dreams X. That's a good question because if he can make anything happen in a dream, so can she technically. So <laughs> she could just say, "Well, he's like, well, I'm I've given myself dream protection." She's like, "Well, I just gave myself a dream baby, so screw you." So. Oh, that was my next question. Dream baby. That's the thing. I don't know. These theoretic the theoretical questions, they're, they're endless when it comes to dream, you know, logic. <laughs> you know, you got to dream big. <laughs> you do. But anyway, she wakes up after they have this really romantic scene. And again, I, I really don't think you're doing it justice calling it dream rape. It's a straight up Cinemax softcore porn scene with them going at it. And then we cut back and she wakes up and she's like, you had no right to do that. He's like, I apologize. I apologize, Jane. And she's like, yes, this is something we both want. I said we can't because of my career, blah, blah, blah. She's very mad. But she does say, but it didn't happen. It was in a dream. So technically nothing happened. He's right. He's like, yeah, that's right. So logically, we're trying to get around what the legality of or ethicality of this is. Although he does make a good point. He says, I just entered your dream without the machine. That's never been done in history before. So like she instantly forgets all her anger. She's like, the scientist in her comes out. She's like, oh, my God, you did. We just had a breakthrough. You jumped into my dream just by sitting near me. Yeah. I think it's time to go take a nap back at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yourself have said you are not a dream linker, so that's not going to help you at all. Now you're just some guy sleeping on a couch at the Playboy Mansion. Well, I'm okay with that, too. <laughs> Jason, you're not picky. Where's my, my wife is gone right now, so I'm good. That's cool. You're just sleeping there. I mean, what's the harm? <laughs> I'm just I'm just in the dream having sex. What's the harm? Okay, so here we go. We're going to get to the third act of the movie where uh, Bob Blair goes to Novotny and says, you know, we can really help the president bring him out to our dream lab and we can go and help his problems with his nuclear dreams. Now, of course, Bob just wants to kill the president, but we don't know that. And even Novotny's like, why would I want to? Why, why would the president want to come here? But Blair eventually convinces him we can really help this guy. He's a good dude. Let's help him out. So. And now we're going to get the first death of this movie where it's going to start to turn sinister what can happen inside people's dreams. Yeah. You know, you got the old lady. I don't know what the old lady's dream is. They don't tell. But, but um, of course, the first thing you do with the old lady, you see with the old lady is that she's coming out of a dream, basically struggling, you know, or not coming out of a dream. And she's in the dream and she's struggling. And to, you know, I think they're going to feel the pulse, but it looks like they're trying to strangle her. I know they're not. <laughs> it's like the first thing you do when you when somebody's having a hard time breathing, you put your hands around her throat. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so this old woman, they mentioned her name. I completely forgot to write it down. And uh, she's in a dream with Tommy, the little weaselly other dream warrior. And she dies. She has a heart attack in the middle of the dream. And Tommy kind of sits up and is like, damn it. He's looking all mad and he's acting. But just from looking, Alex is watching and Alex is like, I don't think he looks sad. He looks like he's very happy what just happened because what he thinks happened did happen. Tommy killed her in the dream because Bob Blair is trying out a new thing here. Let's see if we can kill people in their dreams to set up killing the president. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Tommy Ray is obviously not upset one bit, you know, but like you say, he pretends. But so the whole idea that is that, yep, we can kill people in the dream. This is awesome. Yeah. And Bob Blair even starts setting the stage here where, He's like, you know, when the president comes here, I want him to be in this area of the building because he knows that Tommy Lee can be near him and, and jump in through a wall. And Novotny's like, that's not how we do the dream lab. And Blair overrides him. Yes, but the president must be here. So they're setting the whole stage for the president to come to the dream lab. Tommy going to sneak in and murder him. And really the only person that's going to be able to stop him is our friend Alex. 
Mm-hmm. And, and this whole scene is like, could Bob Blair be more obvious that he's got nefarious purposes? You know, the way he's talking, nope, nope, it's got to be in this room, but we can't, we don't want him. Nope, it's got to be in this room. Yeah. And he's like, uh, there's something going on here. You know, I'm putting two and two together. And all the defibrillators we normally have in there, take those out. No defibrillators. Make sure we have nothing in the room with the president. Yeah. <laughs> but now we also get the first link that we see something bad's going on because Bob Blair and Tommy Ray are on screen together for the, well, together by themselves for the first time. It's like, uh, conspiracy much? Well, this is like a great scene. This is like the Emperor talking to Anakin in Star Wars Episode Three, where Bob Blair's like, you are my protege. I have trained you well. And Tommy's like, yes, I've done whatever, my life for you, Master. I've done everything. And Bob's like, good. Well, I have a mission for you now. So we kind of learned the backstory that Tommy Lee was a troubled kid. Bob Blair looked after him, kind of like... Alex and Novotny, similar if you want to parallel, but he's looked after him for years. He's like a father figure. So he has trained Tommy Lee for this big moment coming up. And can we talk about the elephant in the room? Tommy Ray's room looked like a teenage boy's karate fantasy. <laughs> he's, he's got posters of karate on the wall and, and like ninja stars and, you know, every teenage boy's, you know, wet dream. I read a little bit of trivia about this movie. I forgot about this, where if you look at David Patrick Kelly's room in Dreamscape, like you said, it has all Bruce Lee stuff. A couple years later, he would star in the movie The Crow, where Brandon Lee dies. That's Bruce Lee's son. So a little, oh, yeah, yeah. little eerie little connection between the Lees here. Yep. I, 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 got, I got one later on for a, a comparison. I'm sure you probably have the same one, but yeah. All right, let's finish this up. We're almost done to the end of the movie here. Again, it moves. it's a quick movie. It's 90 minutes. There's not much exposition. But uh, this is where Alex is sneaking around. This is what Alex does. He sneaks around and looks at stuff, and he looks in the file of Tommy Ray, and he's like, I don't trust this guy. I think he killed that old woman, and he finds the file that says there's something bad that happened in Tommy's past. Now, Jason, what did Tommy do in the past that perhaps would lead you to believe he might be a bit of a psychopath? Well, you know, I mean, aside from the, the him killing his father, I mean, I don't know. Did he not do the dishes one day or, yes. you know, or, you know, did he have a, a pet uh, ferret? Uh, I don't know. No, he, he killed his father, you know, psychic murders father. Yeah, there's a whole file in there of Tommy that he killed his father when he was a teenager and they put him in an institute. Bob Blair kind of eventually recruited him, looked after him. So but there is some psychopathy in the past of Tommy Ray. And this is where Alex realizes, oh, my God, this kid's like straight up nuts. And he starts putting two and two together that I think when the president comes here, he's going to be in danger. Yeah, well, and of course, we've already broken a rule, though. I mean, Alex did exactly what we told not to. He, He went and looked for the files. That's what Bob Blair was worried about. Don't whatever you do, don't look in Tommy Ray's files. Don't look at these incriminating files that are on site with a security officer who lost his chair. <laughs> yes. Whatever you do, don't go to this room with a big circle and neon lights pointing towards it. Don't go to that room. It probably had a, had wording on it. Don't go here or uh, secret files in this room. <laughs> okay, so Alex knows kind of something's up. Something's weird with this Tommy Le- Tommy Tommy Lee. Ray, is it Ray or Lee? I keep alternating. I always forget. Tommy Ray. Tommy Ray. Okay. So, and this is where the the horror writer uh, Charlie Prince pulls him aside again in a, in a restaurant and gives him even more exposition. And this is where Charlie has figured out the subplot. Right? What's going on? Who's Charlie Prince? I thought you meant Norm. Norm. Yeah. Sorry. Norm from Cheers ambles over and says, you know, I've been researching. For some reason, he knows he's in the know of everything that's happening in this movie. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I think Bob Blair is going to kill the president. I think they killed that lady. They're a hit squad. Alex, you are not being trained to help people in their dreams. You're being trained as a dream assassin. And this is where Alex is horrified when he realizes that's the truth. 
Yep. Um, I don't have much more to add to that. I mean, he's a really good uh, writer, apparently, because he does good research. He does. He's amazing. And then he instantly gets shot right at the end of the scene. So, it's, oh. yeah, if you want to see a movie where Norm gets killed, this is the movie. No, Norm! <laughs> Norm down! <laughs> if there were, only there was some way to yell his name out loud, but in a sad way. Well, and the funny thing is, of course, they're killing him in the middle of this crowd of people that are getting out of a basketball game or something like that. And, okay, I'll give the fact that there's lots of people around and there's confusion and chaos and all kind of thing. But honestly, them just going into the middle of the crowd, shooting him right there, him falling down, and everybody else is still like, yay, basketball, we won! (laughs) Well, to be fair, Norm often does end up passed out on the ground, so it's not out of character. (laughs) He had a few at the game. Yeah, so to the horror writer has been murdered. Almost everybody's going to get murdered throughout the end of this movie. All the good guys trying to help Alex. But uh, this is where Bob Blair pulls Alex into the car and he explains his plan. He like, does the uh, James Bond villain. Says, My plan is to get the president in there and we go into his dreams. And Alex's like, you're killing people in their dreams, aren't you? And, and Bob Blair says, well, that's just the way it works. You die in your dream, you die in life. And he's talking about all the security reasons and we could go into our political enemies, into our enemies of the country. And he's like, join us, Alex, join us or die, basically. And Alex says no and jumps out of a car. So the last 20 minutes of this movie be the bad guys trying to catch Alex. No, well, he jumps out of the car at the worst time, too. He's on like the side of a ravine or a cliff or something, you know, but he's okay. Well, the stunt double's okay. (laughs) Yes. But from here on out, Alex knows the plan. He knows that uh, Bob Blair is killing people in their dreams under the guise of, as Bob says, I'll do whatever I can to keep this country safe. But but Alex is putting two and two together. Oh, my God, he's going to kill the president. He just told me. So there's all these orders out for the bad guys to kill Alex. There's a big chase scene here, blah, blah, blah. But it's going to culminate in back at the college, the president's dream where Alex is going to fight Tommy. Okay, I got to skip forward my notes here because I was talking about stealing the dude's motorbike and then them suddenly finding him without GPS. Yeah, well, the, none of that's really relevant to the discussion. It's just a chase scene. You're correct. Now I have to go. For, I, I, I said he had to wear a helmet. He wasn't wearing a helmet. And the hair was at the bottom of the staircase. See, I'm, you're, I'm skipping all these great notes. No, I'm kidding. Um, oh, and now Alex is back at the, at the at the facility and he's back in the secret room again. You know, and he has to find the dream, the file on Bob Blair. Apparently, they have a, a file on Bob Blair at the at the uh, at the Dream uh, College. So they have files on all these evil people and all the evil things they have done, and nobody's ever noticed that before. <laughs> well, you know, the, the rule was don't go in there. <laughs> Wait, so Novotny wasn't even going in his own files? <laughs> yeah, there are things to think about. So yeah, so uh, this is where. Uh, Bob Blair confronts Novotny and says, all right, when the president's here, I'm in charge. And Novotny, the leader, is like, no, you can't do that. This is mine, my project. And basically, uh, Novotny is murdered and stuffed in the trunk of a car. So everyone's going to die who crosses Bob Blair at this point. The only ones left are Alex and Jane, who's been hiding in the building, and will help sneak him in. You missed your marketing opportunity. There's plenty of trunk space for a corpse in this station wagon. (laughs) Yep, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to get off track there, but uh, yes, uh, Jane comes to the door to let Alex back in. Of course, Jane apparently knows that Alex is outside the door because she may have gained the, the power of telepathy through the the dream sex. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and so we're setting the stage here. Last 15 minutes of the movie, and I kind of forgot this ending is actually pretty quick. Where uh, so the president is there in the dream lab. They have him in a bed. They have Tommy sitting in the room next to him, the dream assassin, who apparently can jump into people's dreams without linking, just like Alex can. That's not specific to Alex. Did you catch that? 
Yep. I, it was erased so you could fall asleep faster. Yeah. And Alex wins. Alex goes downstairs with Kate Capshaw. Her office is right under the president. And this is the big showdown. Dream Warrior against Dream Warrior in the president's dream. One trying to kill him. One trying to uh, protect him. It's basically like Terminator. Yep. And, of course, the president's on a train. <laughs> yes. That's what he does. <laughs> Okay, so explain this dream. This is another post-apocalyptic dream, all red. Explain this dream to people. With uh, I think Alex gets there first, right? Yeah, Alex gets there first. He tells the president that Bob Blair is trying to assassinate him through the dream. That, yes, if you die in the dream, you die in life. The whole, the whole story there. And he says, you need to wake up. And in, in that way, they can't kill you. But the president says, no, I've got a sedative, you know, and uh, so I, I, I can't wake up. And everything, which I don't know why he knows that, but anyhow, the the question I had about that, of course, is that if he has a sedative, will he go into REM sleep, you know, with a sedative? Ooh, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that because I do know they say that affects sometimes the sedative changes your metabolism a little bit. Okay, that's an excellent question. Thank you, sir. It's splitting hairs at this point in time, but you know, still, it's something I thought about. It does does lead to a second question, though, Jason. This one's equally as important. Are they also counting the president's boners? <laughs> uh, this is not Clinton. It's not based on Clinton, so I don't know. I, I, the, the only time Eddie Albert's boners have been brought up in an episode of Staff Picks. It's a first. Come on. It was in the theme song Green Acres, wasn't it? <laughs> it's the, the PG-13 version they cut when it went to DVD. <laughs> it's been Spielberg. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so they're in the dream, and uh, Alex is there, Dennis Quaid trying to protect, protect the president, and then uh, Tommy Lee shows up. and uh, Tommy Ray. God damn it. Tommy Ray shows up all in black, and this is the first showdown. And Tommy Ray's got this cool effect where he can make knife little knives pop out of his fingertips, and he, like, kills a cop and rips the guy's heart out. It's a cool little effect. Well, of course, this is where my other uh, coincidence was, is that he rips the beating heart out of this ticket taker. And, of course, now we realize also Kate Capshaw in the Temple of Doom, you know, in Temple of Doom, they ripped the guy's heart out, you know, the beating heart in the hands. So that's the comparison between the two, you know. Kate Capshaw can't get away from ripped out hearts. Has any actor ever been in two movies in the same year where someone gets their still beating heart ripped out? Um, I, Yeah, I can't answer that. <laughs> Wow, that's impressive, an impressive piece of trivia. I have no zippy comeback for that one. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so yeah, so yeah, Tommy rips out the guy's heart, and this was just, basically the next 10 minutes are Alex just fighting Tommy, beating each other up, and uh, dream effects. They can do whatever they want in a dream, and, uh, and I think Tommy even says it here. It's a dream, Alex. You can do anything you want in here. All bets are off. And they end up like on a zombie train with all these irradiated people, if I recall. On a train. Um, yeah, they're all irradiated on a train, all kind of stuff. But one thing I want to set here, too, is that when we talk about how creepy things are, once again, this is a really creepy area, a creepy thing on the train with these zombies. They're really, for the time, pretty creepy looking. You know, they're, they're irradiated and like their skin's falling off and all that kind of stuff, um, which was you know, pretty gruesome for the time. But um, the other thing, of course, is that this is all speeding by. There are many, many sets in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. They built these elaborate sets. And I'm just like, I wonder how much time and money went into that, because apparently they threw it all at that, not at the station wagon. I was going to say that, too. Yeah, this last dream fight sequence, they go through like five different sets. They're in one train, then they're in another train, then they're in like an underground subway station. Then they're like in hell with fire. Then they're in a cave. Then they're on like an escalator. They spent a lot of money for stuff they just ran through. 
Yeah, it was like a minute in the movie or less. You know? But of course, uh, Tommy Ray, you know, uh, of course, if you're thinking Tommy Lee, you're probably thinking Motley Crue. Yeah. But Tommy Ray, um, he has these super nunchucks. And they do not look safe at all. You got these like spikes on the end of them, like a mace or something like that, you know. So I can't imagine them whipping these things around. You know, it brings back to that karate room. But you know, <laughs> these aren't the kinds you want to get stuck under your arm as you're whipping them around. Well, you know, in a dream, you can make them as safe as you want. Oh, okay, so they got little. Uh, they're wrapped in bubble wrap. Yeah, they're Nerf. <laughs> They've been nerfed. Yeah. So Tommy does get to show off his nunchuck skills. It's actually pretty impressive. I think he probably took some uh, nunchuck training before this movie. It's pretty good. But then, then he really morphs into the uh, showstopper at the end of the movie, where where you know Alex is beating up Tommy because Tommy's a little dude, and Tommy's like, you know what? You can't beat me because I know what scares you, Alex. And bingo, here we go again. Uh, Tommy becomes the Snake Man again. And then all of a sudden, Alex is afraid of him. Because, like, earlier, he's, like, holding on to him and waiting for Buddy to kill him and stuff. And now, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, Snake Man! So, so he's helpless without a seven-year-old child to help him. We need Buddy. <laughs> now, I was going to bring this up a little bit ago, but I didn't want to get off topic because now this is relevant again. But the whole point is you die in the dream, you die in life. Mm -hmm. So when Snake Man got axed by the kid earlier, does that just mean that um, Tommy Ray was injured? Or, I mean, he would have died in the dream, I would assume, which means Tommy Ray should be dead in real life. Well, yeah, I mean, in theory, because he's he's imitating the Snake Man. He's just an illusion. He's not really the Snake Man. Like The Snake Man died in real life. Like, in real life, he was sitting in an easy chair, you know, smoking a pipe and reading a newspaper, and he just keeled over. So, but yeah, he's not really the Snake Man. He's an illusion of the Snake Man. He's playing the races. That's what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just yeah. It just it's just one of those things that now it just kind of threw me like the REM sleep thing. It's like there's a little bit of a hiccup there, but not enough to make it to be like, oh, this movie is unbelievable. The theology of this movie is throwing you off. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we culminate in the final fight with uh, the president and Dennis Quay down in a cave, and he's trying to protect the president from the Snake Man, and the Snake Man pops up and bites Dennis Quaid, not quite in the shoulder like the deltoid or whatever, whatever that, whatever that that muscle is in the back of your neck. I always forget. Trapezius. Trapezius. Yeah, he gets a fatal trapezius injury, so Dennis Quaid basically collapses and dies. And I I have to say I never noticed it until this viewing of the movie, but. I, well, they said earlier that Alex has certain powers that nobody else has. Is it implied that he dies here, but he somehow manages to come back to life in the dream? I don't think he died because he cured. I mean, you can see him curing it. Mm -hmm. if it I mean, I'm assuming he used the power of dreams to cure it. Okay, so that's but that's the power. He somehow is using these regeneration qualities that Tommy isn't expecting. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the things I find is hilarious is whenever the bad guy does their little dialogue and says, and you can dream, whatever you can dream can happen. And so like Alex is like, oh, I got bit by a snake here. Healed. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for telling me, bad guy. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, the end of the movie is basically uh, uh, Dennis Quaid is dead, but or not dead. He's incapacitated, but he comes back to life. And right when the Tommy as the snake man's about to kill the president. Uh, a cool little uh, reversal here of uh, sneakiness by Dennis Quaid as he does something Tommy's not expecting. Yeah, he uh, takes the form of Tommy Ray's dad. He says, I love you, Tommy. Yeah, there's the dad that Tommy Ray killed 20 years ago when he was 15. And all of a sudden, Dennis Quaid morphs into the dead father, still with the gunshots on his chest. He's like, 
Why, Tommy? Why did you kill me? I just wanted to hug you. I love you. And, and Tommy turns and breaks down while still in half snake form. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I imagine that uh, that Alex is, is, is playing the clown and it, you know, Pennywise. Come to the, come to the, you know, sewer. Um, anyhow, sorry, I got sidetracked there, but yeah, he, uh, you know, he's, he, he, while he's distracted with, uh, Alex taking on the form of Tommy Ray's dad, the president is useful. Yeah. The president, I forgot the president deals the death blow here. He kills Tommy, Tommy Ray. Now, one of the things I did find funny about the scene is Alex knows that Tommy Ray can pretty much pop up anywhere, mm-hmm. but Alex pretty much just takes off the president, leaves the president behind. It's like Tommy Ray could have just gone up to the president and gone poke, you know, Alex is a shitty bodyguard. Let's just leave it at that. Better than the security guard. (laughs) Wait, Alex is guarding buddy and buddy has to kill the snake. Alex is guarding the president and the president has to kill the snake. So good job, bodyguard. He wants to empower them. I know. There's no wonder Whitney Houston didn't hire him to her bodyguard. She hired Costner instead of Dennis Quaid. <laughs> by, by the way, now that I mention that, I read they offered the role of Tommy Ray to Kevin Costner. He was the first choice to be the villain. I can't imagine a young Costner in this role. Yeah, well, Costner's like, I don't want to play the second fiddle. I'm only star. So he wouldn't take the role. But I do think uh, David Patrick Kelly was a better choice. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a good choice for any villain. Yeah. So... So the president takes an iron pole, stabs it through Tommy's chest and kills him. And we get this um, pretty cool scene of Tommy dying in real life out in the dream chamber. He's been speared through the chest. So he's like, uh, he's like writhing and holding his chest. And Bob Blair's looking as horror, looking on in horror as his trained assassin has failed and died. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, of course, um, you know, they come out of the dream and, and, the, and, and Alex goes, I got the bastard. You know, I stopped the bastard. I'm like, no, the president stopped the bastard. You were just kind of there. <laughs> and how is the president able to wake up now? Like the sedative wore off eight minutes later? Exactly. I got the I got that on my notes right there. You know, um, I said uh, sedative only takes effects when it moves the plot forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he hadn't even had time to get a boner yet. <laughs> we don't know what he was dreaming beforehand. There were some, uh, you know, uh, zombie uh girls in that train probably unless the snake man gave him a boner and then there's whole new sort of psychological issues the president had to deal with (laughs) new nightmares i'm attracted to reptiles (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's an inception it's now permanently ingrained in his brain (laughs) i'm sorry i apologize for kink shaming the president who's sexually attracted to snakes well him and his cardigan you know his giant cardigan yeah, so the movie ends with the president waking up and Bob Blair's like, Mr. President, are you okay? And the president's like, take your hands off me. You tried to kill me. And so uh, it's funny. He can't do anything to to Bob Blair because Bob Blair is like a huge national security guy. But Alex can. And Alex, like, in the next scene, is like, you know what? I'll take care of Bob Blair. And he just kills him in his dream in the next scene. Yeah. Well, he says he needs to take care of Bob Blair on his own. And I put, well, how in the world could that possibly happen? Yeah. Yeah, those who live by the dream assassin die by the dream assassin. <laughs> yep. You know, he probably made friends with Freddy and sent him in. Although I have I have no complaints with any scene in this movie. I think it's all, almost a pretty flawless movie for what it is, a little middling sci-fi PG-13 movie. But the scene where he kills Bob Blair, okay, I'll explain it to people. Bob Blair's in a dream walking down the hallway, and he opens an elevator, and Dennis Quaid is in there. And Bob Blair's like, what are you doing here? And Dennis Quaid, for some reason, rips off his head to become not the Snake Man, but like a Snake Man. It's like a totally different Snake Man. 
Oh, and that one, I wrote in my notes on that too. The the makeup on that one was like, oh yeah, we guys we got like a day to uh, make some new Snake Man makeup. Can we get that done, please? Yeah, that's the thing. They have this amazing Snake Man, and then at the end they have two seconds of Dennis Quaid in like a reptile mask, and that's it. <laughs> like, why not just stab him with a knife? It would have been just as effective. Why do you have this crappy reptile effect at the end? That made no sense. But whatever, the movie's done. It's had enough goodwill to now. I'm I'm willing to uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. They could have run over him with a station wagon car with wood siding. Yeah, or a steamroller or something fun. Like Fish Called Wanda, flatten him. Yep. <laughs> that's exactly where I was going. And, the, yeah, that, that's it, really. Now, Bob Blair's dead. Jane and Alex are together, dressed in their nice preppy clothes, you know, or yuppie clothes. And guess what? Another train! That's right. Back on the train. and But basically, but it makes sense why they'd be on the train in this, because they had the steamy sex scene earlier in the movie in a dream train. Now they have to recreate it in a real train. So I, it actually I, it fits the plot. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But, you know, like I said, Amtrak should have got their piece of the pie. <laughs> well, he certainly got his piece of the pie. He, he got a lot of action in this movie, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> So, anyway, that's how it ends of them in the train car. And for some reason, it's the same train conductor. It was in their sex dream. And they're like, what? And it's kind of a funny little moment. But then it ends with them tr- going off to Louisville, Kentucky, so we can go to the Kentucky Derby. And basically, they'll be banging in a train car for three days. And they're in love. And it's a happy ending. And you get a lot of sexy sax music to play them out. A happy ending, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's the R-rated version. <laughs> well, I mean, they don't even wait. They, 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 the ticket taker comes, and they're like, and then they're all over each other. Oh yeah, they're like going right at it as they're pulling out of the station. What they don't tell you is the ticket taker is a dream warrior, and they're in they're in his dream. Oh wow, that's the sequel. <laughs> Spoiler. They're remaking everything right now, anyhow. So you know, Dreamscape's going to be remade with the ticket taker being the star. That would be cool, and he could make knives come out of his fingers and pull Kate Capshaw's heart out. Total inception, right back to the heart again. <laughs> yeah, so that's it for a just a fun little PG-13 sci-fi movie from the mid-'80s that, again, isn't super well-known. Nobody ever talks about it, but people that knew it and grew up with it always remember it, especially that damn Snake Man. Yeah. And then that's all I have to say. You can just say Snake Man. You don't even talk about the movie. You just say Snake Man. And if you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's really funny to put this put in perspective is that uh, I work remotely. I work from a company in Florida. I do programming. And every day we have a call on uh, Skype where we get together and we go over our projects. And I always do a little thing where I put a movie still behind me in the background and I have people guess which movie it is. And not a lot of people on my team are movie fans, so the, I can slip a lot of movies past them. But just the other day, I put a picture of the Snake Man from Dreamscape in there. And instantly, like, four people on my team are all like, Dreamscape, Dreamscape, Dreamscape. Like, everyone knows. If you see the Snake Man, you know Dreamscape. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and funny enough, I almost do the same thing. Whenever I make my weekly notes for my students, mm-hmm. you know, my video notes, I do. I put movie scenes or, or scenes from different uh, movies or TV shows in behind me. Yeah, although I was later fired because I put the R-rated version of Dreamscape, the sex scene there, and they didn't appreciate that. <laughs> you, you should have spielberg it out. And you know what? Uh, of the two of us, I never saw this movie in the theater, so I never saw all the nudity in it. Only you did, my friend. And the sad thing is, I can't remember it. See, the best moments in life pass you by when you're not even looking. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, yeah, Ferris. All right. Do you have anything else to say about Dreamscape before we sign off and send all my listeners to go track it down and watch it again? 
No, the only thing is, is that uh, my, my end notes here basically say this movie still holds up. It actually surprisingly holds up better than I expected since I haven't seen it in many years. I mean, I've seen it since I was young, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it in many years. And if you really get past some of the a little bit of the hokiness, not much, but a little bit of the hokiness, the, the overall story is actually pretty strong. And it was one of the first of its type, uh, you know, especially in regards to the telepathy um, that um, kind of set the stage for some other films. And um, and and like I said, Dennis Quaid was you know a, a rock star in that period of time. It, it came out in a, such a wonderful period of time for film that. You know, it did get trumped on a little bit. I shouldn't say trumped on, buried a little bit, but it really is worth viewing, and it and it and it uh, it holds up. Yeah, and I was gonna say, I really don't think there's much hokiness in this movie at all, compared to how much there could be. Like, it's kind of astounding when you watch it. There's not that much. Yeah, I I agree with that statement. Yeah, and the story is really provocative. I really like the idea of this movie. If they did it again, like I could see them remaking this movie. I don't really like remakes in general, but if you do one 40 years later, the same general premise, just kind of change the plot significantly enough where it's not just an exact ripoff. It's a cool idea that could spawn a whole bunch of movies, to be honest. Yeah, sequel alert, train taker, or ticket taker. There you go. So you know, one day we will learn his story. The ticket taker on the train. They're going to Star Wars it and make like a solo film, but for the ticket taker. <laughs> yes, that's, we need the expanded universe for Dreamscape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's about it. Uh, once again, thank you for uh, joining me, Jason. I always have fun. I don't know if you ever listened to our Clash of the Titans. We had so much fun with that episode. This one reminded me of that where we're just kind of goofing off and making jokes about it. Lots of asides. But I, I thank you for joining me, and I'm glad you are a three-time host now. Yeah, I absolutely appreciate being a, being a trifecta here. It's a it's a lot of fun. We've done we've done three very different films, and uh, I appreciate each and every one. They're a lot of fun, you know. And so this one, you know, we, we had some good laughs at this one and stuff. But but the takeaway is go see it or go rent it, you know, watch it and buy it and have fun with it. Yeah. The big takeaway is when I first sat down to come up with the idea for staff picks, one of the first 10 movies on my list without question was dreamscape. We got to talk about dreamscape. So that's your takeaway. This is one I've really felt strongly about. It's odd that it's like my 130th episode, but this should have been like my first five episodes. That's how strongly I feel about like this exactly exemplifies what staff picks is. Nice. Glad to be a part of it. And as always, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Watch out for that frickin' snake, man. (laughs) See ya. Good afternoon, everybody.